Miracy. And so there's this, you know, explosion of options available to the end buyer, right? The participant in the course. And does that make things harder, right? Does that make it less attractive to get into course creation today? Or does it just mean that the market overall and the number of opportunities has grown? Hello, and welcome to Course Lab, the show that teaches creators like you how to make better online courses. I'm Danny Eamy, the founder and CEO of Miracy, and I'm here with my co-host, Abe Crystal, the co-founder of Rizuku. Hey there, Danny. In each episode of Course Lab, we usually showcase a course and creator who is doing something unique with their course. But in this special mini-series, we're doing something a little bit different. Abe and I are going beyond the design of courses themselves to dive into the platforms that host them. Because building a course platform isn't just about creating some basic functionalities. It's about having a vision for where the industry is headed and then building the technology to enable that vision. Each of the platform creators in this mini-series has a different perspective on where the industry is headed and what that means for you. Our guest today is my good friend Greg Smith, the CEO and co-founder of Thinkific. Greg, it's so good to have you here. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Danny. Thank you, Abe. I appreciate being on the show. So tell us the backstory for the benefit of our listeners. I mean, today, Thinkific is the 800-pound gorilla of the industry, and you know it couldn't be a nicer, friendlier gorilla. But like, tell us the story of how did you even get to the world of online courses, and how did that turn to the software of online courses? How did Thinkific get to where it is today? Like, Give us that story. Yeah, I, it's funny because you said usually you talk to creators of courses. Well, I'm still a creator of a course. I got my start in that early days. I think it was 2005, 2006. I was teaching and tutoring the LSAT on my university campus at UBC, doing everything in person and thought, you know, I can help more people if I go online. And so it started with a blog and then put together a mini course. And we actually went looking for software. We didn't want to build our own software. We went looking for a platform that would do it all for us and just couldn't find anything. We looked at marketplaces. The challenge we had there was, you know, they would own and have a lot of control over customers and data and brand and things like pricing. We looked at LMSs, but the standard LMSs at that point, especially were very sort of corporate or university or high school kind of driven, which was different than what we wanted to do because we wanted to just put our brand on it, put it on our own site and educate people out there in the world, but do it in a way that was building a business. So that led us to build our own solution. And then as soon as we had ours going, we just saw a huge influx of other creators saying, we want to create our own courses the same way you did under our own brand and site with our own control over pricing and data and customers. And so that's the impetus behind getting started with Thinkific. And it took us a while to get there, but 2012, we started building Thinkific as the platform that gives you everything you need to take your special skill, knowledge, passion, and and go build a business around delivering that to others. So traces the path from, you know, 2012, you know, you're this scrappy startup to 2022. And it's like, you know, it's been a 10-year journey. You've grown like crazy. You've actually grown public. You're a publicly listed and traded company, which I'd love to hear what that's been like for you as the person running the show. Um, But it went from you to many hundreds of people working on this. Trace that journey for us. Yeah. So first three years, it was really small team. I don't think we cracked even six people on the team in the first two, three years. And that's because we had some false starts. We tried some different things. It was interesting because when we got started, the idea was a single platform that lets anyone create their own courses and sell them, but do it under their own brand and on their own site. And then we tried kind of the marketplace model. We tried 
creating the content ourselves. We tried doing sort of bespoke solutions for bigger organizations. And eventually, after a couple of years, came full circle back to the original idea of like, let's help the creator, let's help the small business or the entrepreneur and build it for them. And once we started doing that, that's where things really took off. And we saw our creator success skyrocketing. They call it product market fit, but it felt like uh, gravity in that you we went from trying to push something on the market to all of a sudden we couldn't keep up with customer demand fast enough. And, and that's when things took off. And so from about 2014, early 2015 on, things just took off. And so that's where we started growing and adding to the team, building out as many features and functionality as we could for our customers, figuring out how to get it in front of more people. And that just continued to snowball with a huge tidal wave of interest in this space. And I'd say even 2015, 2016, 2017, it was still sort of the early innovators, you know, just a smaller group who really knew about the space. They knew exactly what they wanted out of it. And it wasn't really until the last couple of years, I've seen it start to go more mass market of early adopters, maybe even early majority coming into the space and more and more people realizing I've got something special in me I want to share with the world. I want to build a business around it. And I'm not sure how to do that. There's so many avenues. I could do sponsorship. I could sell physical goods. I could create content on social platforms. And some of those are ending up as creating learning products and delivering them. And so that's continued to grow, but it's certainly been a shift in the market in terms of the mindset uh, and type of creator coming into the space. And so we're leaning into that. And it was last year, actually, that we did the IPO. So we were at a couple hundred people on the team, growing exceptionally well. Everything we do here at Thinkific is about helping the creators to build their business and doing an IPO just seemed like the best move for us to be able to do that for the greatest number of people and help them in the biggest way possible. Awesome. So this is the part where I ask a question that you're welcome to say, I don't want to talk about it, but I don't often get to chat with CEOs of public companies and especially CEOs of public companies that I'm friends with and that I know and that I have a ton of personal respect for. And, you know, I'm fairly familiar with Thinkific, the organization. I mean, I've been to your headquarters. I've met people who work for you. I'm quite familiar with the technology. And I've been tracking what you guys have been doing since the IPO, and it's been impressive. And I've also been tracking the share price. And the share price doesn't seem to reflect all the amazing things you guys are doing. And I'm just wondering, what's that like for you as a CEO? And you're welcome to say, you know, let's just skip past this part. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad you asked. I'm totally happy to talk to anything of that nature. Share price is an interesting one in that it doesn't drive business strategy. It doesn't drive our mission. It doesn't affect sort of the things we do day to day here. We come in every day energized by helping creators build businesses and get their message out. And the share price, if you actually look at it over the last year and you map it to pretty much any other tech company, it's almost the same chart. So the one thing that tells me is it's largely market forces driving it over the last nine months. And so it's something that unfortunately we don't have as much impact on in the short term because market forces are a huge driver of it. In the long term, though, it's our ability to deliver for our customers, our creators, and give them success that drives our success as a company. And that's what will drive the long-term positive impact on the share price. We have a strange ability to impact the share price in the long term by executing against our vision, but a lack of ability to impact it in the short run. And so what it means is I try not to focus on the short-run share price and just focus on the long-term vision for the company. Awesome. So what I would want to hear more about is you, know, you talked about this shift from the buyers of, I mean, the people who want to create online courses and therefore the buyers of online course creation software going from innovators to early adopters to the early majority over the last couple of years. 
What have been the ramifications of that? And how does that inform, for example, the features that you guys are developing? Yeah, I think seeing more and more people come into this space has created a few really exciting things for me. One of the biggest actually is something I don't think we talk about enough is just the diversity of background of creators on different subjects in that if you look at, say, a masterclass, you'll see Gordon Ramsay teaching cooking. And I like learning cooking from Gordon, probably a great chef, but it, it sort of sends the message of old school education of like, there's the man in the ivory tower knows best and teaches even the university concept, right? There's sort of one great professor who's got a PhD and that's where you learn this subject from. What we've seen through more and more people coming into this space is that you can have someone with a completely different background, a completely different viewpoint on it, building a community of people who maybe identify more with them or want to learn from them. And so you put this diverse land of education, and I'm just so excited about what that means for the future of our society as a whole, because I'm learning cooking from someone whose only qualifications are that they're Indian and they're a mom and they learn from their mom who grew up in India, and I'm learning Indian cooking. And that to me is super exciting because I get some of the cultural slant on it. I get the, here's why we do it this way. And here's what my experience was eating dal when I was a kid and why I like it to taste like this or why, you know, my mom put this in it. So I'm just so excited to see this diverse background coming into education because education influences so much of what we are as a society more than anything else out there, I think. And so bringing diversity into the viewpoints that are being taught I think has just such a positive impact on the planet. So this broadening of opportunity and this increasing diversity, which I agree is a great thing. What are the implications of that for the person listening to this who's thinking, I think I want to create a course. I think I want to do this. What do I need to watch out for? What do I need to be mindful of? Well, one of the exciting implications, I think, of that diversity of backgrounds, too, is that you can now make a meaningful income as a creator without millions of fans. And if you relied on the social networks of even a couple of years ago, because of the way the algorithms work, where they drive traffic to the highest performers, you have 90% of the revenue going to 2% of the creators. Whereas with a platform like Thinkific and any platform where you control the brand and the pricing and the product that you're delivering, you can create meaningful income with even a hundred or dozens of fans or followers. So it's really shifted to where we're creating this creator middle class. And it may not be exciting for everyone to feel like, okay, I want to be part of the middle class, but keep in mind, being a middle class as a creator might mean that you're making an extra thousand or five thousand dollars a month at a profit margin of 80%, where you're keeping most of it. And it could potentially be on almost autopilot. Like my own personal course now does ten thousand dollars a month on autopilot. I don't touch it. So that's kind of great income every year for very little effort. Now I'm not suggesting everything about this is autopilot or it's easy to do, but it's a lot easier to get into some life-changing amount of income. And then you can always grow it and scale it from there. So that's one of the most exciting things for me and, and the thing to watch out for or look for opportunity from creators. The other really interesting trend I'm seeing more and more of is multi-skewed creators, where it used to be that people sort of had one way they were doing business. And now I'm seeing more and more people might have a physical product. They're doing a membership site. They also have a free community and a paid community. They have an entry-level course and a higher-level course. So people are moving beyond just, I have one course, let's sell it. And they might do that as a starting point. And hey, keep in mind, it's great to start with one product. But more and more, I'm seeing people move into a kind of a multi-product, multi-skew business where they have multiple offerings. And it's a great way to generate additional revenue out of a smaller fan base. I mean, I guess the flip side of what you've talked about in terms of the democratization of education and 
so many more creators are now able to jump in and build things and have their own businesses is all wonderful. I guess it, it also leads to a bit of like saturation on the creator side, right? So just curious what your thoughts are on how you see individual you know, course creators and experts handling now, now that there are so many course options in any given you know, niche or topic area. How do people compete in this world where you know, they're not the only course creator on the block anymore? Uh, Abe, I think it's the first time we've talked. So I got to say, always been a big fan of Rizuku and what you built there. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and your brand and your customer, everything about it. I thought it was lovely. So uh, yeah, it really is. I just had to say that. <laughs> I'm a fan. It's a great question about potential sort of saturation of creators. And I think, strangely enough, when there were less creators, I was seeing more saturation in a sense of there was more of teaching the same generic skills, right? You would see more courses broadly on a topic. And Danny, I know you've done lots of teaching people to sort of niche down. And I think more and more we're seeing people niche down and be more comfortable teaching from their own perspective, from their own background, giving their own slant on a topic or teaching it a certain way or really niching down the topic to their specific area of expertise within it or area of interest. And that I think helps move us away from any kind of saturation, right? Because if you have 50 courses all on geology and they're all just general geology 101 courses. Yeah, that's saturation. But if you have someone who's teaching geology for the purpose of geologists who want to do mineral exploration in northern Canada, well, now you've got a much more niche topic. So as people start to get specific, I think they move away from that concern because there's no shortage of communities and people out there who are interested in learning topics as long as you're unique in what you're teaching or at least moving in that direction of being unique and also how you attract and speak to your audience right because i see two people say teaching the same thing but they come at it from different ways and they connect with different audiences they build different communities and so there's room for both of them to operate in a similar space yeah it makes sense i mean i guess what cuz sort of related to that challenge is, you know, as a creator today, especially if I'm coming into making courses for the first time, you know, I, I may have some expertise and background. I may even have a nice, like, well-defined niche. But, you know, we hear from a lot of people that they don't really know where to start with finding customers for their courses or, like, how to do marketing. What are you seeing, you know, working for creators today in terms of marketing their courses and getting customers successfully? Yeah, one more growing trend. And we used to see it in Facebook groups and their Facebook groups are still definitely a thing. But more and more, I'm seeing people kind of take ownership of that community back and saying, I'm going to start by building up a community. And the, the cool thing there is if you build a community of even a few dozen people, now you've got a group that not only can you potentially sell content that you create to, so whether it's a course or, or something else, you can sell that to them. But you've got this feedback mechanism where they're kind of part of your private community that you can then talk to them and say, what do you want to learn? Or I'm trying this. Should we try this? And so what I'm seeing is people who focus on building a community and then serving them up some smaller things to get some feedback before they necessarily move into the big thing. Occasionally, people know exactly what they're, I'm going to do this big course. And there's nothing wrong with that if you're more experienced. But generally, I find doing this sort of minimum viable product, get something in front of them, get some feedback on it, and then grow it from there. Because what is it? No plan survives contact with the enemy. It's sort of like no product survives contact with the customer. You just get it in front of them, get some feedback, and then you can iterate and grow from there. So the people I see being most successful are the ones who invest in building a small community. It doesn't have to be huge. And then just immediately get something in front of them to get some feedback. Nice. Greg, I have a question around 
what makes for a good enough course and what makes for a great course? I mean, as any market matures, the bar for what is minimally acceptable slowly goes up. And so the bar for what makes amazing slowly goes up. So how have you seen that bar move over the last few years? And where do you see it moving to? Like, what are the table stakes for a quality course now? And, and what is it going to be, do you think, in the next couple of years for someone to build something good enough or, or not just good enough to be acceptable, but good enough to really stand out and win? Yeah. And there's multiple vectors on which you can look at this problem. There is the technology, there's the sort of learning experience you're building, there's the content, and then there's sort of the engagement and experience of the student. And if we actually rewind to when I got started in courses, say 15 years ago or 17 years ago, back then it was a landing page with a PayPal button. And then when you paid, you would get a downloadable zip file often that had some PDFs and if you were lucky, some video files in it. And that was sort of the, the whole experience, right? Which wasn't much of an experience because people were mostly just focused on close the deal. Who cares about the content afterwards? Um, creating the content was a way to justify selling something for the less passionate about teaching. As we've moved forward, we moved into that phase of having course players like Thinkific had to offer and, and having a more video based and quizzes and doing some reading. And then it's gotten more interactive. And now we see more things around assignments. And I'd say the next phase that we've moved into now is the expectation that there's more community. And certainly through the pandemic, we saw an uplift in people wanting to not just consume content, but engage in online communities. And so that's kicked that off. And so as we go forward, I think community is going to be an important part of it, where we're engaging in and talking to other people around it. And I think a quote that I've had from even some of the communities I've joined is, is like, People join for the content and stay for the community. So I think having some form of community interaction around the content you're creating is more and more important. And what I'm interested to see is how we, especially as things have opened back up, how we're blending community and even in-person or more personal experiences with the online learning and the online communities. And I think there is going to be continuous mix of that as we go forward. Then the other interesting trend that I think is still, it's exciting that Apple's entering the space, but the augmented reality, virtual reality is something really interesting. And I've pushed back against it for a while because I didn't see a hardware manufacturer that I thought could make it mainstream. But now that we know Apple's entering the space, or at least we assume Apple's entering the space, I think that gives it a real chance to go mainstream and bring it into education in a meaningful way. And I'm a big fan of sort of sci-fi and things like I've read the book Ready Player One numerous times. So the idea of learning and augmented or virtual reality is really exciting for me. So there's this kind of an arms race that goes on between, on the one hand, the technology and the tools are constantly working to make it easier and easier and easier to do something. And on the other hand, the rising expectations of the market make it harder and harder and harder to do something. So on balance, how is that dynamic shaking out for aspiring course creators? Like how easy versus difficult is it to create not just any course, but a great course that does well in the market, you know, now versus how it was versus how you expect it will be? Yeah, I think we've got to the point where it's quite easy to get something up and going on the content side. Uh, and then it kind of becomes how much are you willing to invest in the quality of that content? And I don't mean perfect quality in terms of lighting and video and audio and all of that, because I think that often sends people down the path of building for perfection before they reveal it to customers. It's okay to get something out that's not perfect quality from a production standpoint, uh, and then you can always improve it from there. But 
quality from a quality content and making sure that you're helping people. And that's often an iterative process because like anything, you get up, you give your first lecture, you create your first course and you put it out there and then people have questions and they don't understand. So the biggest ways I think we can invest in creating better and better courses is listening to the questions that are being asked. The, the mistake of those downloadable zip files of old were you got no feedback. So there was no feedback loop to improve often because people didn't care to improve. But now that we're in a more competitive space that way, it's important to improve and you can have a bigger impact on people if you listen to them. And that's where I think things like communities, doing some group coaching, things like that, both give you easier access to start selling sooner, but also give you more immediate and continuous feedback to constantly improve your product. So I think the greatest thing you can do to make the greatest possible courses you can deliver is to listen and create feedback loops for you that whatever you're delivering, you're constantly hearing if it's good or bad or helpful or not. And you're watching what are people struggling with? Where do they need extra help? And that creates the ability not just for you to make this product better, but also to invent the next product, the next area of help. So creating listening loops is probably the best thing you can do for long-term quality of what you're delivering and the impact you have. Awesome. That was fantastic. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much, Craig. No worries. Yeah. I had one more cool thing that it just kind of came to mind that I could share is I think the hard sell is really, it's out. The hard sell is out. <laughs> the savvy creators, I think, are exploring more ways to sell a little more naturally and organically. So it still works to throw up a landing page, have the webinar and push hard to a sale. And those things do work. But I think more and more integrating some of that into learning experiences and community experiences and moving from just buy, buy, buy to let me bring you in and give you a taste and then talk to you and have you part of the community and then create multiple opportunities across multiple products potentially for you to decide to engage with me financially. There's something really interesting going on there with this transition to more organic selling as opposed to the more direct, heavy promotional selling. What could, if a course creator listening to this wants to apply that idea or framework to their own business and courses, any tips or suggestions, like what would be some good ways for people to get started with that model? I think probably the easiest way would be if you've got, say, social channels or wherever you're bringing people in from a marketing perspective and you give them an opportunity to lightly consume things often for free or at a lower cost. So they come in, they join a free community and they get to experience in things there. Or there's a lot of people doing the challenges where there's, you know, for a $10, $20 fee, you're getting them through a uh, an email challenge experience. But bringing people into these light touch experience, light touch financially, but more heavy touch community and engagement wise starts to build loyalty around you and your brand. And it means that you can then drop things into that community to sell. And so the really cool thing about that, especially on the community front, or once they're in your community, be it that your email list or your virtual community is, you're not having to do as much of the work to market when you want to sell something. Because if they're already engaged and they're already working with you, then when you put something in front of them in that community that you're hosting, the audience is already there, potentially ready to purchase as opposing to having to spend as much on ads or push as hard on email. So creating a place for people to hang out where you can deliver things of value to them later is a great way to do that. And communities is a good way to do that kind of thing. Awesome. Thank you. Perfect. Abe, do you want to do the readout? Greg Smith is an entrepreneur, lawyer, and lifelong learner. He's the co-founder and CEO of Thinkific, and you can find out more about him and the platform discussed in today's episode at thinkific.com. 
Now stick around for my favorite part of the show, where Abe and I will pull out the best takeaways and share our own insights as well. Abe, where shall we begin? I mean, interestingly, it seemed like one of the big themes of this discussion was around community and the idea of building community as a way to build a course business and also how that integrates into the learning experience. I was intrigued um, by the idea of you know course creators moving more towards a model of building up engagement and gradually nurturing a community over time as the core of their marketing efforts and then having sales come through that in a more organic way rather than needing, say, to have you know, a big launch or some kind of really structured promotion to bring in all the sales for a course. Yeah, there were a lot of interesting ideas that all kind of tied together, interestingly, at the end. So, you know, you've got the theme of the evolution of the market from innovators to early adopters to the early majority, which leads to a lot more diversity of course creators and course types moving away from just the kind of usual suspect courses that everyone used to be building. And now it's a lot more niche and specific. And so, you know, while there are a lot more course creators, the variety of courses being created is kind of like expanded as well. So it sounds like there remains an opportunity there. But as we move to a much more mature mainstream market, people have a lot less of an appetite for the hard sell and a lot more appetite for, yes, I want to get to know the brand. I want to get to know who you are and what you're about. I want to understand what your community is. I agree that note of the increase in the importance of community, which leads to have to create better courses over time, which are done iteratively through creating these listening loops. What came away for me out of all of these things is that the opportunity is still very attractive. Absolutely. And there's an opportunity to create really, really great stuff. But what jumped out to me is that this is less and less an opportunity for dabblers. Right. It used to be that you could like, you know, in the early days, just create something, throw it together, put it up there and, you know, make money automatically on autopilot. And you can certainly build something that creates some kind of residual income, but it's more work to plan it. It's more work to build it. It's more work to test it. It's more work to iterate it. It's more work to build the community that supports and sustains it. Um, not more in a, in a prohibitive way. It sounds like if you do it right, the math all still works out, which. I mean, you know, I do this, you do this, we, we agree, I think. But you can't like dip in and out to make a quick buck in the way that some people might have been able to in the past. It's not for dabblers. It's a thing that you take seriously as a thing that you're doing, is what I took away from this. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that in previous interviews done with course creators where, you know, we've talked to some people who are just totally invested in their courses and constantly improving them and their marketing that are building significant businesses out of it. And we've talked to people who, you know, we're kind of doing their courses more because it's fun or, you know, a side project or they just enjoy doing it. And, you know, that's fulfilling too, but the revenue may not be as significant. Um, yeah, I mean, the, that, I didn't, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, the other aspect of that we could talk about is this idea of where do you go as a course creator in a world where basically anyone can create a course much more easily. And so there's this just explosion of options available to the end buyer, right? The participant in the course. And does that make things harder, right? Does that make it less attractive to get into course creation today? Or does it just mean that 
the market overall and the number of opportunities has grown. I mean, it sounded like Greg came down on the side of the latter perspective that, you know, just the overall market for courses is growing. And there's continued opportunity to keep finding a very specific segment within that, right? So, you know, don't offer a, you know, a generic health course that's going to compete with big brands that are now doing that with huge audiences. But you could have your very, very, you know, specialized health area that you help with that could still be really, really successful. So I don't know what you think about that, Danny, having you know looked at what a lot of course creators are doing in different niches and so on. I agree with that. I think the part we didn't really explore in the conversation is that you can go more and more narrow with a niche, or you can go deeper and deeper with the transformation. And in both cases, the shallow and wide is where it's very saturated. And when you go either really narrow and specific or deep in terms of the actual transformation outcome that you deliver through all the levers that we talk about pulling in this show, you become more competitive. But I, I think this is part of just it's a two-sided coin, right? The opportunity for independent online course creators, really fundamentally, it's a disintermediation play, right? It used to be that if you wanted to teach something, you had to go through an aggregator called like a university or a community center or something, right? They bring all the students, you come as the teacher, and look, the middleman is gone. You can reach the people on your own and you have all this opportunity as a result. But that also means that you have the burden of marketing to find those people and reach them, um, which means you've got to work harder. You can reach more people, you can do more, you're not constrained by the middleman, but you don't get the middleman doing the work of the middleman for you either. Yeah, which is, is definitely a big challenge for a lot of course creators, but also the opportunity. I mean, I guess also raises the question of, do we need new aggregators to come back in and help address that somehow? Now, that is an interesting question. We might have to get Greg back on for a part two. That's right. All right. Do you want to do the readout? Thank you for listening to Course Lab. I'm Abe Crystal, co-founder and CEO of Riziku, here with Danny Eaney, founder and CEO of Miracy. Course Lab is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Once Upon a Business and Making It. This episode of Course Lab was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer. Post-production by Post Office Sound. Another thanks to Greg Smith for joining us today to talk about his platform. Head on over to thinkific.com if you'd like to learn more. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-F-I-C.com, thinkific.com. To make sure you catch the really great episodes coming up on Course Lab, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please share it with a friend. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. I had a thought about that, which I've now lost. Uh, niches. Yeah, niches or niches. I've gone back and forth on that. Should I do the Canadian or the uh, American pronunciation? Niche or niche? Yeah. <laughs> I go back and forth. Yeah, I'm yeah. not even consistent. <laughs>
So I can almost sense that I'm listening on multiple levels. That's a great frame. That's a that's a really great way to think about it. Um, I think so, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that something that is very dangerous is for people to think that being a great coach comes from having the credentials. One has nothing to do with the other. So again, part of it is just you know either through questions or asking what they've tried, or sometimes it's you know the forest for the trees thing. My favorite part of having the hard conversation is. Ooh, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Okay, so while I love what's on the other side, I think navigating through that conversation is my favorite part. Yeah, because we're not there necessarily as coaches to provide solutions. We're there to guide our people towards solutions. And I don't know if it's you know societal pressure or peer pressure, but we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. I want to help and support coaches so that they can evolve into their greatness. My desire for the show is if I could scoop up all of the coaches and bring them into my living room and bring up the topics that leave crinkles in our forehead, so that we can fully understand what it means to show up in our greatness, fully confident, so that we can build better businesses, so that we can be better coaches, so that we can make a lasting impact on this world collectively. And we want to rise to that level. That being said, you do want to set yourself up and your clients up for success by making sure that there is clarity around their expectations and your expectations as to how you can help them. People have to know a little bit about what you offer. Otherwise, how do they know that they need what you can help them with in terms of that transformation? And I love having the conversations and navigating the topics that keep us at the forefront in a time with what I call the results revolution. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this is a really good problem to have, right? So if you have someone who's resisting your price, it means they're really interested in working with you. The thing is, sometimes it becomes negative. It becomes toxic. I've been in the coaching industry for almost 20 years now, and over these years, I have seen everything behind the scenes in our industry, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. I've seen the evolution of our industry and of what it means to be a coach. I just want to say to all the coaches out there, you know, matching who you are to the kind of coach that you want to be is just a practice. Do you want to add some parting words? No, I think you did great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, this is absolutely the tone, the feel, the everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop the recording now. Why are you stopping the recording? This is going to be fun. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a wrap. That is going to be an amazing session.